We're going to be in Acts chapter 27, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. We're going to be reading a little bit of a longer passage, but uh, it's, a, it's a great story. So I'll be reading that here in a second, and then we'll see what we have to learn from it. Once again, Acts chapter 27, right almost at the very end of the book of Acts. We'll be starting about in the middle of it in chapter thir- uh, verse 13. All right, well, let us read this passage, and then we'll see what we have to learn from it today. In Acts 27 and verse 13, it says, When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called the Nor'easter rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Calda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing, how they, would, fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way we were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. When the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. And when they had sailed farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then, fearing that we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some of the sailors tried to escape the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to uh, put anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged all of them to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks in the presence. Uh, he had given thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. They were all encouraged and took food themselves. So in this series, what we are doing, we're in a new series called Surrender. And what we're doing in this series is we are looking at what is God's plan for our victory over the problems that cause breakdown in our lives. We have all these different problems in our lives that that cause uh, breakdown in different ways or cause our, our lives to fall apart in different ways. We looked at a really famous example of this last week when we looked at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you are familiar with Daniel, if you remember the story of Daniel uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember that there was this period in Nebuchadnezzar's life where he was driven insane and lived, it says, as an animal for seven periods. So we don't know exactly uh, how long that was, seven weeks, seven months, or you know, some other measurement of time. But for a significant period of time, he was living as an animal, driven uh, insane, before he was delivered from his insanity and he repented before God. We looked at what caused that in Nebuchadnezzar's life and could what was causing that in his life be something operating in ours as well and how does God rescue us from it? What we looked at last week was it was the issue of pride. Every week we're doing that same thing. We're looking at passages in scripture that uh, that, that uh, reveal issues that we all deal with 
that cause breakdown, that cause problems, that cause our lives to fall apart, that cause conflicts, and more, most importantly than anything else, that cause breakdown in the relationship between us and God, that place obstacles in between the relationship that we have between us and God. And often, our solution to deal with these problems is the exact opposite of what the real solution is. God's plan to bring us deliverance, freedom, and victory from these issues is usually goes against the, com- the common sense that we think with or the common sense of our world today because God's solution is that we surrender. And once we surrender, through surrender to him, we find victory from these issues. We're going to continue that today by looking at this story. I love this story. The book of Acts is, if you've been here a long time, you know the book of Acts is one of my uh, all-time favorite books of Scripture. It's one of the ones that I've studied more than any other, and so it's always a privilege to get to, and a pleasure to get to speak on Acts. And I love this story, too, for many different reasons, but what this story does is it provides us with a vivid depiction of something that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, you might think to yourself, Getting caught in a in a basically what was a hurricane, getting caught in a hurricane, in in, in a in a boat, you know, I haven't been on the water recently, and if it was, it was tubing, right? This this doesn't sound like something I deal with on a daily, daily basis. But what they faced here is something that we all deal with on a daily basis, and that is the issue of control in our life and what happens whenever we lose control, or to put it another way. What happens when we realize that we actually weren't in control all along? This story is a vivid depiction of that, something that we need to come to terms with and recognize and then ultimately surrender that control to God. So, well, I basically just gave you my whole sermon. I guess we'll still go ahead and go through it. First, we're going to look at pain in the storms and what that teaches us. Then we're going to look at purpose in the storm. When you're going through the storm in life, God has a purpose, and you need to know that it's crucial. So you respond to it well. And that's going to be power in the storm. So we're going to look at pain, purpose, and power in the storms. Let's begin by looking at pain in the storms. Have you ever been going on a vacation? You're excited to get there and go along. Or maybe you're going on a work trip and you're uh, beginning the first leg of your trip. And you go to the airport and you go through the hassle of getting through security. You go through the hassle of sitting and waiting in the, uh, the waiting areas. You finally get onto the plane. You're sitting there, and then they come on the intercom and say, oh, we're sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's going to be a little bit of a delay. And now, as you were, and they won't let you off the plane. You know that, right? You've ever, if you've ever been in the situation, once you're on, if something goes wrong, they cannot let you off. It makes no sense to me. Like, we're, we're going to get off of it at some point. Why can't we get off now? They'd rather you stay in that tiny little seat where it's hot and you're sitting next to someone that's strange and just stay there, right? They, they won't let you off. And the, the problem that's going on with the plane, you can't do anything about. You know, I don't know, there's a couple of engineers in here. Maybe you could do something about it. I can't do anything about it. And even if you're in that position, they're not going to let you do anything about it. In other words, you worked hard to plan this vacation to make sure all the details were perfectly in line. You did your research on the best flights, the best airlines, the best hotels, the best Uber or Lyft services or, 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 or taxi uh, services, the best hotels, the best activities to do once you get there. Your work trip was all planned out. You got your reports, your spreadsheets, and so on. You had all the details lined up, and now all that work, all that agency, everything that you had done is taken away from you, and you are just stuck there. Have you ever been in a situation like that before? One of the best stories was my brother was going on a trip. I don't remember where he was, uh, but he was going on a trip, and he, he sat down on the plane, and they told him, oh, we're having an issue. It's going to, there's going to be a delay. They would let them off the plane, and they're stuck there. It ended up being hours. Hours of just sitting there. Finally, the issue is resolved. They come back on the intercom, and they say, oh, we're sorry, ladies and gentlemen. We're trying to find the pilot. <laughs> and they're just stuck there. There's nothing that they could do about it. In that situation, in that moment, and if you're like me, this is what gives you more anxiety than anything else. In that moment, you are acutely aware that there is nothing you can do about it. There is absolutely nothing you can do about that situation. All the control that you had exercised up until that point, in an instant, is taken away from you. You have lost control over the situation. And that's the same experience as being Uh, at sea in a storm. So Paul, in this portion of Acts, 
had been uh, arrested by the Roman authorities because the Jews were accusing him of trying to start an uprising and a rebellion uh, with, with his preaching of Jesus' resurrection. And so uh, the Roman authorities arrest him, and they hold him in prison for a while, interrogating him and trying to figure out what's going on here. Is he innocent? Are the Jews right? And so on. The Romans don't really care about the theology of it. They just care about uh, maintaining the peace. That's what the, the governors who are in charge of the different provinces and so on and the judges, were, were. that was their job, just maintain the peace. And the Romans, to a certain extent, tried to work with the Jews well, and so they wanted to make sure they kept them happy and took care of this Paul situation. They realized that Paul is innocent in, in this situation and that he wasn't trying to start an uprising. This was a theological debate amongst them. But he appealed his case to Caesar. That was a privilege that you had as a Roman citizen. You could appeal your case to Caesar. You could say, no, I want this to go all the way up to the highest court, their Supreme Court, so to say. And so he appeals his case to Caesar because he knew that he had been called by God to bear witness for the gospel uh, all the way up even to kings and rulers. And so that's his, that's his game here. He's trying to get before Caesar because he knows he will have a court before the emperor to tell him about the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. But since he appeals to Caesar, that means he's going to stay in chains longer. So they're trying to transport him from uh, Israel, where they were at this time, across the Mediterranean Sea to Rome to get to Caesar, right? That's where we are here. On their way, uh, uh, along the journey, they're caught up in what it, called, what it describes here as a northeaster or nor'easter. Basically, this, it was a, this is a hurricane on the Mediterranean Sea. That's what this was. And so if, if you live here, we all know about the power of hurricanes and how, how scary they can be, how life-threatening they can be. Can you imagine being caught on a boat in the middle of one of these? That's what happened to them here. And it's interesting, you notice how it's speaking in the first person in the section of Acts. It's saying, you know, we this and we that and, and so on. That's because Luke, who wrote Acts, was actually on the boat in this story. In some of the stories in Acts, he's telling us about what he had learned from eyewitnesses, but then sometimes he speaks in the first person. And so he's saying, we this and we that. And it's interesting, scholars know that the person who wrote this had to be there because his descriptions of what the sailors were doing was so detailed. Ancient historians, I'm not even talking about biblical historians, ancient historians have actually used Acts 27 to learn about the sailing techniques during this time. Isn't that interesting? That's how detailed this was and why no one questions that this was an eyewitness account written by someone who had to be there. So this is, this is the, the scene that we're in. This hurricane, this nor'easter comes upon them, and they are now caught in a storm on the sea. You know, ancient boats, even at their best, no matter how well built they were, they weren't really built to withstand the power of one of these northeasters. So this is a scary situation they were in. They were working hard against it. They were throwing cargo and so on overboard. Uh, scholars say that, based on how you interpret some of the words here, they may have even been uh, trying to throw uh, some of the masts themselves overboard, doing everything they can to lighten the load of the ship to try to save the ship, and save their lives. But no matter what they were doing, we recognize that they had little or no control in the situation. Little to no control at all. This pain that they were experiencing brings up for us what is the first point that I want us to see today, which is that God allows storms in life to remind us that we are not in ultimate control. God allows the storms of life to, to come in to our lives in different situations to remind us the pain of that experience. Like I said, the anxiety of being stuck in that situation that you realize that you have no power to change. God allows those. We're going to look more in, deeply into his purposes next. But the first thing that I want us to re realize is that he allows us these storms so that we can recognize and be reminded of the fact that we are not ultimately in control of our lives. Look at it this way. Is life a land journey or is life a sea journey? If life is a land journey, well, what happens whenever you, there's a storm that comes and you're on land? You can get away, usually. You can get away or you can get into shelter of some kind. But if you are at sea and a storm comes along, like this nor northeaster, then you're absolutely powerless to escape it. There's nothing you can do. 
So which one is life more like? Is life a land journey or is life a sea journey? The answer most often, now sometimes there are those situations we get ourselves into that is 100% our own fault. So there are those cases. But even still, most often life is a sea journey. The storms of life, the difficulties of life, the sufferings of life, the pains of life and so on come upon us. We are now swallowed up in them without any control or ability to make them go away. But one of the goals and the primary drives behind our modern society today is to try to make life a land journey, to try to exercise more control over life and over the world around us. Just think that so much in our modern society today is built all around that goal to control our lives. This is one of the differences that happen whenever our whenever Western society was industrialized and moved from an agrarian society to an industrialized society. You see, because in agrarian societies, you are much, much more aware of how little control you have over the situation you find yourself in, your future, and so on. Because in agrarian societies, you are daily and monthly uh, connected to and very aware of the forces of nature that play a large part in determining your future. Right? Will your crops grow? Will they be? Uh, will they be? Will they be given rain and so on? The nutrients they need so they can grow. Will there be storms that come and take away the whole crop? Will there be droughts that that dry them out and so on? If any of you guys are involved in any kind of farming at all, you know this. Your life is connected to, and you are re- you are very aware of just how much your well-being and your future depends on these forces that are completely outside of your control. But whenever society moves from that to an industrialized society, where now the things that the forces that uh, determine the well-being of your life now and your future are machines that you can tinker with and control and turn on and off and make go or make stop and so on. Well, now you are in control of all those forces. You see, so as a society as a whole, we move to start um, taking control of the world around us and thereby trying to take control of our lives and our future into our own hands. And this develops even more with the advent of various technologies and more machinery and so on. Just think about how many, uh, how much media, how many apps, machines, metrics, diagnostics, hacks and biohacks and optimizations we all have that we're all carrying around, that we're all trying to practice so that we can control every aspect of our lives. Attempting to be our own gods. But it's an illusion. It's the illusion of control. An illusion of control that we don't actually have. But occasionally something will come in that reminds us that we don't have that control. That we have been deluded into thinking we have a storm. That despite all of our best efforts and despite all of our apps and machines and metrics now has robbed us of that control we thought we had. Things like a sickness, whenever a sickness comes into our life, despite all of our best efforts in taking our vitamins and health and so on, you can't control it. You can't stop it. It's outside of your power. Things like a job loss. You feel like you're in control of your life and you know you're planning for your future and so on, and then there it goes, right? That source, major sources of income, gone. Job losses, betrayals from family or from friends and so on that remove you out of that realm that you thought you had where you understood your life and are now making you question many of the fundamental assumptions that you had before. Things like, as we've been talking about, natural disasters and so on. We can go on to many different examples, but there are all these things that come in and they remind us of this fact. And so it's important that we drive this home and we grasp this, that God allows the storms in our life to remind us that we are not ultimately in control. We need to be freed from that illusion today if we are going to live well and better in the future. You don't have any control over the storms, what kind they will be, when they will come, but you do have control over how you will respond. So the question is, how do you respond? How do you respond whenever the storms come into your life? Before I give you the prognosis, let's just do a little bit of self-reflection. Right now, or in the past, How have you been responding whenever the storms come into your life? Do you start to row harder and work harder and try to regain the control that you felt as though you had lost? Do you do everything you can to stay in power 
of yourself and of your situation or of your job or of your home, whatever it might be that you have realized you have lost control over this. Do you do everything you can to stay in your power? That's what the sailors were doing in the first half of this story, right? They were doing everything they could to remain control of the situation, and it was all for naught. They were losing control more and more. Or, on the other hand, you might be someone who, whenever you have a situation like this happen, and you realize that you have lost control, you attempt to instead abandon ship. Towards the end of the story, whenever the sailors realize that they were getting closer and closer to shore, and that <laughs> if you're getting closer and closer to shore, what does that mean? You're going to wreck, right? They realize that they did not want to wreck and get caught up in a shipwreck, so they decide that they're going to jump ship, literally. They're going to get out and escape, get away. Maybe some of us respond in that way. Some of us respond to this recognition that we are having a loss of control, not by more engagement, trying harder, but disengagement, quitting, getting out of it, or, or trying to escape whatever it is that is challenging us and challenging our powers and so on. Which way do you typically respond? But Paul alerted the men that God was in control of their situation. He comes to them and he tells them, the God I belong to told me this. God was still in control of their situation. And we must recognize the same in our lives, whether you are in a storm right now or whether you're in a time of calm, that God is the one who is in control of our lives ultimately, in control of our situations, the storms and the calm. You know, and I love, by the way, that Paul gets up and he says, my God spoke to me, I have good news. We're all going to be saved in a shipwreck. <laughs> it's like, oh boy, that's a hard pill to swallow. Not sure if I'm happy or if you made me more scared. Right? You're all going to be saved when we lose the ship. <laughs> that's what Paul says to them. But so why does God allow the storms? One of the things that the, the pain does is it tells us we're not in control. But what could his purpose be? Why does he allow the storms in our life? There's a, a, a thinker that I've learned so much from and benefited so much from. He was a, um, an Austrian psychologist named Viktor Frankl. He was a Jew who was a victim of the Holocaust. He was uh, in a couple of different labor camps, and he survived. He survived uh, whenever the, they were liberated, and he later wrote a book that was part memoir and also part uh, some philosophy, I guess you'd call it, on the situation and how to deal with sufferings in life. It's called Man's Search for Man. Phenomenal little book. But in that book, he says this. He says, everything can be taken from a man but one thing. He was in a situation like that. right? If you were in the Holocaust, everything had been taken away from you. That was a situation where all control, all power of your life was taken from you. He says, everything can be taken from you but one thing. He says, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. In other words, he says, there is this one freedom that even in a uh, concentration camp, a labor camp, this one freedom that they cannot take away, and that is, how will you choose to respond? And this is a freedom that God has for us as well, and that he wants to teach us how to respond so we might respond well, so we might find victory even in the storms. And responding well will depend on knowing God's purposes for the storms. If you're familiar with philosophy and the history of philosophy at all, you'll know that the Bible is not necessarily unique in this regard, that it tells us and reminds us that we're not ultimately in control of our lives. There's a group of Greek philosophers who are really famous in reminding people of this. You might remember their names were the Stoics. The Stoics frequently reminded and talked about how we are not in control of our lives, and so we just have to give up our lives to fate. No, that's not all that comforting. What does it mean? Does it mean that I'm just giving up my life essentially to death? I'm just waiting around until death comes and takes it all away? What do I do with that then? It ultimately makes life meaningless, which is what many people turn to uh, modern, in modern times, such as Nietzsche, Camus, uh, and, and others. But if we recognize, yes, we are not in control, but control of our lives lies in the hands of our good Lord, well, then we can respond well and actually find some agency to act right, act well in the storms. God allows storms in life to accomplish his purposes. This is so important that we grasp 
I'm going to give you two. He allows the storms in our life to accomplish his purposes. There's a general purpose and there is a specific purpose. So, first, the general purpose for why he allows storms into life, the general purpose is good. The general purpose is good. What I mean by that is that no matter what kind of suffering we endure or times that we go through that remind us that you know we're not in control of this situation, God is in control and his purposes for it and for the outcome are good. He does not intend to just, he is not punishing us in the storm. He is not trying to destroy us in the storm. Uh, he does not intend for us to just suffer. He is not masochistic. No, he allows all of these pains uh, ultimately for good reasons. We have so many different examples in Scripture of this. Let me give you just a, a couple. Think of the story of Joseph. During the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis is one of the last stories in the book of Genesis. Joseph was one of Jacob's sons. He was the, the well, second to youngest because there was another brother born after him. But he was one of the youngest sons, and Jacob bestowed uh, all kinds of favor and gifts and blessings upon him because he loved this boy so much. Out of jealousy, his older brothers then took Joseph, they, uh, they beat him up, they threw him into a pit, and then ultimately they went back, got him out of the pit. They were going to leave him for dead. They decided not to do that. They took him out of the pit, and they sold him into slavery. You could call that a storm. You could call that suffering. You could call that your control and power being taken away to be sold into slavery by your own family, your own brothers. Joseph's suffering didn't end there, though. He is sold into slavery, and then he is uh, in, sold by the, the slave captors to, um, to a powerful man in Egypt who has him for a while as his servant. Another bad thing happens to him that makes this man then sell him to uh, Pharaoh himself. He is working for Pharaoh. Another bad thing happens to him. He is falsely accused again. He's thrown to prison. And it's not until he comes out of prison. I got some of those details out of order. Anyway, it's not until he gets out of prison that he goes and ends up working for Pharaoh and uh, working his way up to being the second in command, second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And because God had through all those pains and through all those difficulties and storms that Joseph had to endure, through them all, God brought him to being at that place that he was now so that whenever dreams were given that, that showed that there would be a time of famine coming, Joseph, with the skill that God had given him, made a plan uh, to essentially uh, store up uh, uh, food so that during the time of famine, the people wouldn't starve. He saves a nation from starvation and famine. But not just the nation of Egypt. Whenever his own family, his father who still believes that he is dead, whenever his own family are starving and they hear that there is a food service program going on in Egypt, they travel over to ask for some charity, to ask for some help so that they might not starve. And Joseph is then able to save his own family because of where God had placed him, and by saving his own family, saving the line through which uh, God would bring his Messiah, the Savior. And at the end of his life, in, in chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph stands before his brothers after he reveals to them who he was and so on. He reveals to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. After his years of suffering, the, the betrayals he experienced, the pain that he endured, his time as a slave, his time in prison, and so on. At the end of it all, he was able to see that what men had meant for evil and the injustices that he had experienced, God had been working it all together for good. We see something similar being told to us in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says that, uh, that, that God works all things together for those who love him for their good. This doesn't mean that in every terrible thing that happens, there's some good in it. That's not what this means. But what it does mean is that all the terrible things that do happen, God can use and orchestrate them all to work some, towards some good end. Now, here's an uncomfortable truth. Whenever you endure a time of suffering or you go through a storm, you may or may not know what that good end is going to be. 
Sometimes we go through a time of difficulty, and at the end of that, or maybe years later, we're able to look back and see something good and great that God brought out of it that we couldn't have imagined in that moment. Sometimes we're blessed like Joseph to be able to see the end. Other times we aren't, though. Consider the story of Job. Job endures all this affliction and suffering that is unleashed upon him by Satan himself. And Satan unleashing this upon him with God's permission. He goes to the Lord and he says, you know what? Your servant Job, he's going to turn on you if you take away all the good things you've given him. He says, let me test him and see just how much he loves you, just how faithful he is to you. And so God allows him. He keeps him on a leash. He says, you aren't allowed to take his life. He says, but, but go ahead, allow the testing. Job is tested. He loses everything. He endures diseases. He endures the ridicule of his friends, of his own wife, and so on. He goes through all this suffering. Now, there's resolution at the end of the story in that he, his sufferings eventually end. But you know what doesn't happen? He's never told the ultimate reason why he had to endure it all. Consider another example. Whenever Jesus was crucified. Now, Jesus knew the end. He was, he was the son. But his disciples, his family, place yourself in their shoes. Whenever their, the disciples, whenever their leader, their mentor, and their friend who they had spent time with, who, who, who had raised their hopes, who had given them a vision for the redemption that God was going to bring, the deliverance that God was going to bring. They had, they had had all this over the last years, and now he is being crucified. Do you think that in their minds they could have possibly grasped what good could come out of that? His family, who endured their, uh, their son, their brother, being crucified, do you think that they could have possibly understood in that moment what good was going to come out of that? They eventually got to see. God allowed that storm on Jesus because he was going to accomplish resurrection and atonement. But here's the truth that always remains. Whether or not we see the good reason, the good reason is there. Whether or not we know the end of God's plan, we know that God's plan is for good. So, God's purpose is for the storm. The first one, the general purpose, is that it is for good. He's working it all together for good. The second one is a specific purpose, and that is for growth and godliness. It's for growth and godliness. God desires, and he allows all the storms to come into our life, not just for a great and good purpose, which we may or may not see, but also so that through the, the process of going through the storm and so on, that we might grow in nearness to God, so we might become more like Christ and so on. You know, towards the end of the passage, Paul encourages them once again. After they had gone for 14 days of struggling through the storm, Paul encourages them once again, and he tells them, not one of you will lose a single hair. That's almost a direct quote from Jesus in Luke chapter 21. In 21, 16 through 19, Jesus says to his disciples, you will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. What does that mean? He says, he says some of you will be killed, but not even a hair of your head will be lost. What could he possibly mean by that? I think the key to understanding it, and even to what Paul is telling them here, is in Jesus' last statement in Luke 21 there. He says, by your endurance, by your endurance through the storm, your trust in me, gain your lives. I think this is what it means. Do you really possess your soul? Do you really possess your soul? You see, if you are living for your job, if you are living for uh uh, you know, if you're if you're living for your job, if you're living for your family, if you are living for accomplishing a certain goal in life, and so on, then that job, that goal, and whatever else it is, those things own you. 
in trying to wrestle control over your life to make your academic path go a certain way so that you can accomplish that goal, to make your career path go a certain way so that you can get that job or that salary amount or whatever else it is, those things will ultimately control you. They will ultimately own your soul. And while you trying to control and coordinate every aspect of your life to attend those things and to, uh, and to work out together for what you think your good is, while you think you're in control, if you live for your job, your job is actually going to own you. If you're living for certain relationships, those relationships will actually own you. You will not actually possess your, your soul. This is true for anything that you give your life to. And whenever the storm comes in and takes away that control, that brings a job loss, the end of a relationship, disappointment in a relationship, or betrayal, or so on, then it will take your life as well. But if you love God more than anything else, if you are not giving yourself over to your job, if you're not giving yourself over even to your own strength and wisdom and ability to keep it all together, but instead you give it all over to God. And if you love him more than anything else, then, then you'll possess your soul because there will be no storm that can take your life away because your life is in God. Do you see that? I think that's what Jesus means when he says, by your endurance, right, faith in God through the persecutions, through the storms, through the, the hatred he says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. By placing your life in the only thing that the storm cannot take away. Now, in order to place your life in that thing, which is God, who, which no storm can take away, is going to require you to let go. You were holding on tightly. You were squeezing that control over your life and your situations and you are straining all your wisdom possible in order to give your life over to what will ultimately save your life, you will have to let go. You will have to give up that control. Because if you love God more than anything, you will gain your life. And you'll be able to handle the storms whenever they do come. They might rattle you, and they might be painful, yes. Even for the person who loves God more than anything and gives their life over to God, whenever a job loss comes... It still hurts. It's painful, right? Or, or any other kind of storm comes into your life, it might rattle you and be difficult. Whenever sickness comes in, it might hurt. It doesn't mean that you won't be rattled. But even in the storms, your love will be reoriented towards God once again. And then in the next storm, you'll be a little bit better off. You see, Paul is able throughout this entire situation here to keep his composure better than anyone else. Paul is calm throughout the whole situation. He's calling all, everyone else into great, to, to have courage. One of the reasons for that, it's not just his faith, but it's his faith based upon what God has already done in his life. Because we know from reading his letters that Paul has already been through other shipwrecks. But if, if I remember right, he says that he, he endured three different shipwrecks, right? Like how does that happen to one guy? three different times. But you know what? Those previous shipwrecks and God's deliverance through those, him allowing that into Paul's life, allowed Paul to have a faithful, calm confidence in what God could do for them here. So in your life, whenever the storm comes in and it rattles you, it shakes you, and it hurts, it's difficult, you hold on to the Lord. He brings you through that storm, and then it makes you more capable to handle the next one. Whenever you recognize, it's okay that I'm not ultimately in control, is God is. And so I can have calm confidence in him. I can have patient endurance because he is in control. You see, suffering does not automatically make you a better person. It doesn't work automatically. Suffering for some people, it'll make them sinner, uh, cynical and bitter. But the same suffering for another person, what might make them warmer, softer, more resilient, and make them closer to Christ. What's the difference? Whenever the storm comes, what will be the difference that pushes one person towards cynicism while the other person towards Christ? Once again, we see it in this passage. What made the difference for Paul? He said to the sailors, whenever he stood up and he said, 
and he told them what God had said to them. He said this, and it's interesting. He said, the God I belong to. It's an interesting choice of words that he uses there. The God I belong to. He's using language of intimacy. He is using language of the God who to him is not an abstraction or an idea, but the God who is a person that he knows, the God that he has a relationship with, and the God that he is, has not just a superficial relationship with, but a covenantal relationship with. Because for you in your life to say, you know, my so-and-so or or a person that I belong to, you don't use that for just anyone, but only for your closest of relationships, you know? I can say my wife, my Layla. No one else can say that, but I can because we have that intimate covenantal relationship with the marriage. My children, you know, my so-and-so, the, the woman I belong to, the kids that I belong to. You can only speak of this kind of intimate language for those very special intimate covenantal relationships, the people that I belong to. And notice how Paul describes God. He doesn't say the force in the sky that'll help us out. He doesn't say, you know, I read in this book one time. He says, the God I belong to. Even in the storm, whenever they have lost all control, Paul is able to maintain a self-control because he knows God's presence is with him. And in that presence of the God that he belongs to, he's able to have calm, he's able to have patient endurance, and he is even able to call those who are around him to have courage. Paul knows that God loves him and that he is with him. But how can we know that God loves us and that he is with us in the storm? One of the ways Jesus described himself and he explained himself to his disciples and and the people around him in several different ways, a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that Jesus described himself is interesting. One time he said, I am the greater Jonah. What does he mean by that? Would you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was in a really similar situation to Paul and the sailors here. He was on a boat in a storm. But in this situation, the storm was brought because of Jonah being on the boat. He was running away from God's calling. And this time, all of those on board would not be rescued uh, with Jonah on board, but they would only be rescued if Jonah would be thrown overboard. In other words, the lives of all those on the boat would only be rescued at the loss of Jonah's life. Now, his life ultimately wasn't lost. He was swallowed by the fish, and then after spending three days and nights in the belly of the fish, he was spit up onto the land. Jonah experienced a metaphorical death into the sea, and then three days later, resurrection. Jesus says, I am the greater Jonah. He says, I am the greater Jonah. He is the one who stepped into the storms of life, who came down on this, uh, on this earth and lived and experienced the sufferings, the difficulties, and the storms that we <clears throat> experience. However, in his case, unlike Jonah, who was experiencing those storms because of his disobedience, Jesus experienced the storms because of our disobedience. But like the story of Jonah, we are saved because Jesus is thrown off. He is cast into the heart of the sea, but his death would not be a metaphorical one. He would give up his life for us and spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth in a grave before he would be resurrected by the Lord, achieving victory, achieving salvation and deliverance for all of us who are caught in the storms of life. Because Jesus was thrown into the belly of the storm and perished and lost his life, and died the death that you and I should, uh, should receive, because he received it and died the death, and then laid that death down in his grave. He has proven once and for all that God's love for you and I is unbreakable, not even by that thing that takes away all that we know, death. Death cannot break the love of God. It cannot take away the love of God. And so since God's love broke death itself, We can know that no matter how great of a storm, no matter how terrible of a storm, no matter how uh, awful of a situation that we are in that seems so outside of our control that absolutely no good could ever come out of, we can know this without a shadow of a doubt 
that God so loves us. That we have his love, even in the storm, and that he is with us. God allows storms in life to teach us trustful obedience. Whenever you're going through a storm, you know, suffering is a philosophical problem until you're hurting. It's something we talk about philosophically and in, in the realm of ideas and so on until you're hurting. A famous example of this is in the life of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, earlier in his life, had written a book called The Problem of Pain. It became one of the most famous books ever written on the problem of evil and suffering. It was a philosophical examination of pain, suffering, and how we reconcile this with the Christian faith. It was very heady. But then years later, whenever he lost his his wife to cancer, he wrote another book called A Grief Observed. This time, a reflection of his own pain, his own actual experience of suffering. It's really interesting to read those side by side. They're quite different. Suffering is a philosophical problem until you are in it, until you are hurting, until you have pain. Then it becomes a personal problem. And in that situation, you don't need answers. You need God's love. If you've ever been with someone who just experienced a great loss, you know, or hopefully if you have any emotional awareness, you know, they don't just need a bunch of answers in that moment. They just need presence. They need you with them. All that to say this, if you are going through a time in your life right now where you are in a storm, control has been taken away, you realize the, the, the illusions that you once lived with have now been shattered. You might be thinking, you know what, I just need to know what's going to come out of this. I need to know how it's going to end, when I'm going to get out of this storm. Like, How could there be any good in this? I need some answers. Let me gently push back against that. Friend, you don't really need answers right now. You need presence. You need God's presence. You need to lean into that love that he has for you stored up in the gospel, knowing that he is with you, that he loves you, and that he will be with you throughout this storm, whether it ends tonight or whether it ends months or years from now, that he is with you. At the very end of the story, Paul stands up and he takes bread and he lifts it up giving thanks to God and he says that he breaks it. And then with that broken bread, all the sailors and soldiers eat, they are replenished, and they are ready to continue through the storm. It doesn't say the storm ends in that moment, but they are strengthened. And today we're going to practice that same thing in the Lord's Supper together. Jesus' body was raised up by God and broken on our behalf so that whenever we take it in, like the bread that is broken, we might be strengthened from the storms that we have been facing, from the sins that we have been fighting, and so on. Or, let me say this to you, if you do not know Christ yet, if you have not been following him as your Lord, and as your, and you have not received him as, as your Savior yet, and you are still in your sin You know and you recognize that you have not laid down your life before him. You have not surrendered your control of your life to him. You have not uh, gone to him so that your sins might be forgiven and your stains and dirtiness might be removed. It says that his blood was shed so that it might wash away our sin. This we have symbolized in the cup that we take. His blood was shed so that we might be washed clean, whiter than snow. And the bread that we take and that is broken, the bread that cannot sustain us and that cannot strengthen us to take courage in the storm and to trust in the Lord unless it is broken. Jesus experienced that on our behalf. His blood shed for our cleansing, his body broken uh, broken to give us life and to strengthen us. And so we're going to practice that together this morning as we continue in worship. Let me call you and encourage you to spend some time in prayer. Look at your heart and look at the ways that you have been exercising or or trying to exercise control in your life, trying to act as God over your own life. Look at the ways that you've been practicing idolatry, that you have not been practicing repentance, and bring those things before the foot of the cross and surrender them to Jesus. Surrender them to the Lord so that by surrender you might experience his victory. 
And then when you're ready, let me call you to stand, come to the back where we have the bread and the cup, and to take the supper together. If there is anyone in here who is weary and needs prayer and encouragement, if you need encouragement for anything, if you need prayer for anything, myself and one of our other elders, Justin, will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you. Come and come to us and talk to us and pray with us. If there's anyone in here who you have not surrendered your life to Christ yet, and you are still fighting that storm in your own power, you are still holding on to sins, you are still holding on to your own future, let me call you to surrender to God for the first time today. Bring your life to him and lay it down at the cross so that he might give you new life, so his blood might cleanse you of your sin, and that he might bring a resurrection in your heart of new life. Do that for the first time today by coming in the back and talking to either me or Justin about what it means to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior today and that you can do that and be saved. Take that moment. Go take the Lord's Supper. And then whenever you're done, I want to call and encourage you to come up before the, before the stage here, before the altar, as we continue in worship. Let us gather near one another. This is something that we started doing. Uh, we did it every week in our previous series. Uh, but come up together and come near one another and let us sing and worship together as we praise the Lord who is not far and distant and doesn't know what it means to have pain, but the God who is with us in the storm. So take that moment for some prayer, take the supper, and then let us come up here together at the altar and worship our God with one another. Let's pray. Lord, for all of us in here who are weary and weak from fighting the storms, Lord, help us to realize that we have been fighting in our own powers, that we have been fighting and struggling in our own wisdom, and that we have not been practicing trustful obedience in you, that we have not surrendered up control of our lives to you and then received the strengthening and the courage that comes from that. Lord, it, uh, reveal to us today in our hearts our idolatries and the things that we've been holding on to that we need to surrender to you and ultimately our own lives that we need to surrender to you. Call us and bring us near to your heart this morning through uh, Jesus Christ and the love that was displayed in his crucifixion and resurrection and the love that is available to us through him this morning. As we go through the storms, let us know your presence in Jesus Christ and the love that we experience from you. We pray this in his name. Amen.